Namo Bhagavate Sri Yarana Chalaramanaya Namaskaram. Um, for the past couple of months, we haven't uh, we haven't been able to meet for one reason or another. So I will now continue from where we last left off. I think it was in February. That is, we I was discussing the the first verse of Adhamabhidhi. What Bhagavan says in this verse is. Though oneself exists incessantly and indubitably as real, the body and world, which are unreal, arise sprouting as real. When unreal darkness pervaded thought is dissolved without reviving even an iota, in the reality uh, pervaded heart space, oneself, the sun, will certainly shine by oneself. Darkness will cease, suffering will end, happiness will surge forth. Um, the logical connection between the first sentence and the second sentence, that in the first sentence he says, though oneself exists incessantly and indubitably as real, the body and world which are unreal sprout, arise sprouting as real. In other words, though the, what is actually real is only ourself. But the body and world arise seeming to be real. And this is what obscures the, the, what we actually are. Um, and then he, uh, in the second sentence, he says, when unreal darkness pervaded thought is dissolved without right, reviving an iota. So what is the connection between the first sentence and the second sentence? is that the body and world are nothing but thought. So when thought is dissolved without reviving an I, I, even an iota, in the reality pervaded heart space, oneself, the sun, will certainly shine by oneself. So I will continue with the explanations I was uh, giving about this. That is, since thought alone is what prevents us being aware of ourselves as we actually are, as soon as all thoughts cease in such a manner that they can never reappear, our real nature will shine forth spontaneously. What appears as the body and world is nothing but thoughts. So in order for us to be aware of ourselves as pure awareness, the appearance of thought, thoughts of any kind must cease. In sleep, all thoughts cease, so then we remain as pure awareness. But from sleep, we sooner or later arise again as ego in waking and dream. And then the body and world again, as soon as we rise as ego, body and world appear. Therefore, being impermanent, sleep is not the solution we are looking for. Like sleep, any state in which all thoughts cease, along with their root, namely ego, but from which they subsequently rise again, is just a state of manolaya. Manolaya means temporary dissolution of mind. Whereas the state from which they will never rise again is manonasa. Uh, that means annihilation or permanent dissolution of mind. So manonasa alone is the solution we should aim for. That is, it is manonasa Bhagavan is talking about in this verse, because he says, when thought ceases in such a manner that it can never revive. That is referring to Manonasa. So the implication in this verse is but but we are 
the, the goal we must seek is uh, Manonasa. And um, he also implies this in verse 13 of Upadesha Undia. What he says in verse 13 of Upadesha Undia is, Ileomum nasum irendu am odokum. That means uh, dissolution is two, Leia and Nasa. That implies dissolution is, uh, that means dissolution of mind is of two kinds, Leia and Nasa. Ileatu uh, uladu uh, erum, eradu uru mindedel. That means Ileatu uh, uladu erum means what is lying down or subsided in Leia will rise. Uh, um, Mindedale means if it dies, uh, uh, uru eradu. Its form will not. If, if its form dies, it will not rise. So there, there are two types of dissolution of mind: temporary and permanent. What we are seeking is permanent dissolution. So in order for us to remain permanently as pure awareness, thoughts need to dissolve in such a way that none of them, not even the slightest or subtlest of them, uh, ever rise again. When they dissolve thus, what will remain eternally is just the infinitely clear light of pure awareness, I am, which is what we always actually are. That is, the truth is, we are always that pure awareness. But because we now seem to have risen as ego, we seem to be something other than the pure awareness that we actually are. But when when this ego uh, dissolves along with all other thoughts, um, what remains is that pure awareness. Our real nature is uh, reveals itself. This is what Bhagavan describes poetically in the second sentence of this first verse of Anavide as Poi me ar ninebu anuvum viadu odungideve me ar idea veli veyon swayam anma vilangome. That means when thought, which is pervaded by or which exists as unreal darkness is dissolved in such a manner that it does not ever revive again, even an iota, in the heart space, which alone is real, oneself, who is the sun, the sun here implies the sun of pure awareness, will certainly shine by oneself. Maya Idiaveli literally means the heart uh, pervade, sorry, the reality pervaded heart space or the reality filled heart space. Um, but as I explained earlier, R is a verb with a broad range of meanings, including to become full, spread over, uh, pervade, abide, stay, remain, exist, or be. And since it is used here as an adjectival participle, maya is a relative clause that means not only which is pervaded by reality or which is full of reality, but which exists as reality or which is reality. So what it implies in this context is uh, uh, which alone is real. <clears throat> Therefore, the intended meaning of maya idea belly is the heart which alone is what is real. 
though he says, Maya Idebeli, Veyon Swayam Amma Bilangome, in the heart space which alone is real, oneself, who is the sun of pure awareness, will certainly shine by oneself or shine spontaneously or of one's own accord, which could seem to imply that the heart space in which our real nature appears spontaneously as the sun of pure awareness is something other than our real nature. This is just a metaphorical description, because the heart space in which our real nature shines forth is nothing other than our real nature itself. In other words, we ourselves have a real heart space in which we will shine as we actually are, namely as the sun of pure awareness, I am I. Uh, this is implied somewhat more directly in the Tamil verse than it is in this English translation, because though the locative case, which is represented in English by the preposition in, is implied in this clause, it is not explicit. So we could interpret this clause without including it, in which case, Veyon, the sun, Maya Idea Belli, the heart space which is real, would stand in opposition to Anma, oneself. So this clause would then mean oneself, the sun of pure awareness, the heart space, which alone is real, will certainly shine by oneself or, or shine spontaneously or of one's own accord. And thereby implying that oneself is not only the sun of pure awareness, but also the heart space in which it shines. Swayam uh, is a Tamil form of the Sanskrit term uh, that in Tamil it's suwayam, in, but the, the original Sanskrit word is thayam, uh, which means oneself, and which is when used adverbally, as in this case, means by oneself, spontaneously, or of one's own accord. So it means the same as tanai, which he used in the same context in the next verse, or and as Tanaha, which he used in this context in verse 20 of Upadeshundia and verse 30 of Uludunaptu. That is, since thought alone is the obstacle that stands in the way of our being aware of ourselves as we actually are, as soon as all thoughts, including the primal thought, namely ego, are dissolved in such a manner that they can never reappear, our real nature will shine forth spontaneously, just as the sun appears spontaneously as soon as the clouds that concealed it are blown aside. So the, the, the thoughts are like the cloud, the sun is like the, 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 the pure awareness that we actually are. Uh, so the, 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 just as the sun is always shining, whether the clouds are present or not, our real nature is always shining. But from our perspective, it's seemingly obscured because we have risen as ego. When the all-consuming light of pure awareness shines forth in this way, the darkness of self-ignorance will cease, suffering will end, and infinite happiness will surge forth. As he says um, in the um, in the uh, in in the concluding sentences of this verse, that is, when light appears, darkness is dissolved. Likewise, when the all-consuming light of pure awareness shines forth as I am I, the darkness of self-ignorance, namely ego, the false awareness I am is body, 
and all Vishaya Vasanas which arise, reside and flourish in it will be dissolved forever. So in the third sentence, Bhagavan says, Irul Adangame, darkness will cease. But dark, this darkness of self-ignorance, avidya or ajnana, is what is otherwise called ego, because ego is the false awareness that is always aware of itself as I am this body, and that is consequently aware of other things. So when we rise and stand as ego, we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are. Since we limit ourselves as a finite body by rising as ego, we thereby fall a prey to desire, the seeds of which are our bhishaya vasanas. So the very nature, <coughs> so the very nature of ourself as ego is not only to be self-ignorant but also to have desire. And as a result of desire, we suffer, because desire is a state of constant dissatisfaction. Without ego, there would be no self-ignorance. Without self-ignorance, there would be no desire. And without desire, there would be no dissatisfaction or suffering. Therefore, when the darkness of ignorance and consequent desire is dissolved in the um, in the, in the, uh, by the shining forth of the sun of pure awareness, suffering will cease forever. So in the fourth sentence, he says, Ida odungume, which means suffering will end. Our real nature, Atmaswarupa, is not only pure awareness, but also infinite happiness. So the spontaneous shining forth of pure awareness is also the shining forth of infinite happiness. In other words, when self-ignorance and suffering cease as a result of the shining forth of the sun of pure awareness, what will remain is infinite happiness, which is what we always actually are. So in the fifth and final sentence, he says, Imbum uh, Pongome, uh, happiness will surge forth. That is one interesting feature in this um, a very significant feature in this song, Anma Bidde, is every, the, the final sentence of every verse is a reference to happiness. In this verse, he ends by saying, Imbum Pongome, uh, happiness will surge forth. In the next verse, he says, Imba Taname, uh, that means, uh, Tanam means Tanam, the, the, the abode of happiness, that is the abode of happiness. Um, in verse 3, he says, um, uh, Imba Vikasame. Vikasam means, um, Imba Vikasame means, oh, Vikasam means the blossoming, the blossoming of happiness. And in the fourth verse, he ends, Imba Vambodie. Ambodi means the ocean. So it is the ocean of bliss alone. And in the fifth and final verse, he ends with the words, uh, Imba Toname, um, uh, happiness will, will uh, appear or shine forth. Um, so that is what he's emphasizing in this, the final sentence of all these verses, is that our real nature is happiness. So if we want to attain happiness, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. Um, so to returning to this verse, 
in order to make all thought cease in such a manner that they can never revive again, even an iota, it is sufficient just to eradicate ego their root. As he says in the second sentence of this verse, all that is required to reveal our real nature is that thought must be dissolved in such a manner that it can never revive even an iota. So as Murugana sang in the Pallavi, that means ah, extremely easy. Atmavidya, ah, extremely easy. So how to bring about the dissolution of thought in such a manner that it will that it never revives even an iota? This is not as difficult as it may seem at first, because though thought is used here as a collective term referring to all thoughts, none of them could exist without ego, which is the first thought and the root of all other thoughts, because all other thoughts seem to exist only in the view of ego. As Bhagavan points out in verse 7 of Aranacha Ashtakam, in the first sentence of verse 7 of Aranacha Ashtakam, in which he says, Indru aham enum ninevu enil. If the thought called I did, does not exist, pira ondrum indru. Even one other does not exist. That means even one other thought or one other thing does not exist. So nothing exists. If, if ego doesn't exist, nothing else exists. That if a thought called I, what he refers to here as uh, aham enum nenevu, the thought called I, is ego. Um, and likewise, in the first two sentences of uh, verse 26 of Uludunapdu, he says, If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego does, does not exist, everything does not exist. And likewise, in the last four sentences of the fifth paragraph of Nana, he says the same thing in a slight more expanded way. What he says in those uh, sentences is, Manatil tondrum ninevugal elavatricum nanenum nineve mudal nenevu. Of all the thoughts that appear in the mind, the thought called I alone is the first thought. Mudal nenevu means first thought or the, the primal, basic, original, or causal thought. Idu arunda pirahe enia nenevugal arukindrana. Only after this arises do other thoughts arise. Tanme tondria pirahe munile padakegal tondrukindrana. Only after the first person appears do second and third persons appear. Here what he refers to as first person is ego, this primal thought called I. So only after this ego appears do other things appear. Without the first person, second and third persons do not exist. That is, without ego, nothing else exists, because everything else exists only in the view of ego. Though Bhagavan describes ego as a thought, it is a thought unlike all other thoughts, because all other thoughts are jada, whereas this first thought, I, 
is the only thought that is endowed with awareness. So it is it, it is aware both of its own semi existence and of the semi existence of other things. But though it is a, a form of awareness, it is not the pure awareness, it is not the real awareness, it's a distorted form of the real awareness. Therefore, in order to make all thoughts dissolve in such a manner that they can never revive even an iota, it is sufficient just to eradicate ego, their root, because no other thought could exist without it. Not only is eradication of ego sufficient, it is also necessary, because so long as ego exists, other thoughts will continue sprouting from it. In fact, ego cannot rise, stand, or flourish. Uh, sorry, cannot rise or stand without grasping other thoughts, as Bhagavan implies in the first three sentences of um, uh, of uh, verse twenty-five of Uludanaptu. Uru patri undam, uru patri nikkam, uru patri undu mika ongam. A grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it, it grows abundantly. And towards the end of the fourth paragraph of Nana, manam epodum or stulate anusarite nikkam, taniyai niladu. That means the mind stands only by always going after, as uh, uh, that implies attaching itself to uh, a, a, a stula, something gross. Solitarily, it does not stand. So without eradicating ego, we cannot eradicate all other thoughts. Only a state devoid of ego is truly a state devoid of thought. Therefore, in the next verse, Bhagavan says that the one thread on which all the many and various thoughts are strung, sorry, it says that, oh, oh yeah, the thought, uh, is, is, sorry, are strung, is ego, the thought or false awareness, I am this body. And if one goes within investigating what is the place or source from which ego spreads out, namely our our uh, real nature, which is our fundamental awareness of our own existence, I am, thoughts will cease and pure awareness, Atmanyana, will shine spontaneously as I am I. Uh, so this concludes my explanation of verse of the first verse. So now I will go on to the uh, the second verse. What Bhagavan says in the second verse is, um, um, he says, Una udl iduve nanam uh, enum ninebe nana ninebugal se o na enum adanal nana idum edu uh, endru ulponal ninebugal poi. Uh, nan nan ena guheul uh, tanai tihrum an manyaname iduve moname eka vaname imbataname. What that means is, since the thought, this body composed, this, the body composed of flesh itself is I, alone is the one thread of which the various thoughts are strung. If one goes within thus, 
what is the place from which I spread out, thought ceasing, in the, ca in the cave, Atmanyana alone will shine spontaneously as I am I. This alone is silence, the one space, the abode of bliss. Um, if we slightly paraphrase this to bring out the meaning more clearly, since this thought, since the thought, this, this, the body composed of flesh, itself is I, alone is the one thread on which all the various thoughts are strung, if one goes within investigating what is the place from which I spread out, or an alternative interpretation of that is, uh, it can also mean who am I, what is my place, all thoughts, thoughts here includes all thoughts, and that includes the root thought, I am this body, will cease or depart, and in the cave of one's heart, Atmanyana, uh, pure self-awareness alone will shine spontaneously uh, as I am I. That is, as awareness of oneself, as oneself alone. This alone is silence, the one space of pure awareness, the abode of bliss. Therefore, are extremely easy, Atmavidya, are extremely easy. That is, getting getting rid of thought and knowing ourselves as we actually are is extremely easy because all we need to do is to go within uh, investigating the source from which we have risen. In other words, going how do we go within investigating our source? Only by attending to ourselves, as, as I will explain as we go on. That is, in this verse, Bhagavan has packed a lot. He packed the, the core principles of his teachings are packed in this verse. So um, my explanation of this verse is going to be um, quite a long explanation. We're not going to finish it today, um, but we'll proceed as, as far as we can. Um, as I explained while discussing the previous verse, the ego is the false awareness, I am this body meaning that it is what is aware of itself as if it were a particular body. But what Bhagavan means by body in this context is not just the physical body, but the entire person consisting of five sheaths, namely the physical body, life, mind, intellect, and will. That is, this is what is, is what are technically known as the physical body is called Anamaya Kosha, the life or is called Pranamaya Kosha, the mind is called Manamaya Kosha, the intellect is called Vijnanamaya Kosha, and the will is called Anandamaya Kosha. So these are the five uh, the, the, the five sheaths that make up the person or body that we take ourselves to be as he makes clear in verse 5 of Uludunapadu. However, as ego, we experience all these five sheaths collectively as ourself. And since we are always aware of ourselves as one, not many, it seems to us that each of these five is a part of ourself, and that we are therefore partly a physical body, partly the life that animates that body, partly a mind, partly an intellect, and partly a will. Um, in other words, we, we experience ourselves as this bundle of five sheaves. In this order, each of these five sheaves is subtler than the previous one. So our will is the subtlest and our physical body is the grossest. 
being the grossest, the physical body seems to us to be the outermost of these five sheaths. And being the subtlest, our will seems to be the innermost of them. And hence, it is often referred to as our heart, meaning the centermost and, and most intimate part of the person whom we seem to be. As the outermost of the five sheaths, the physical body seems to be the container in which the other four sheaths res reside. That is, though our will chittam consists of inclinations, vasanas, which are the seeds from which the other four sheaths and everything else sprout, and though it is therefore called the karana sarira or causal body, whenever it appears, it does so along with the other four sheaths. And like the intellect, mind, and life, it seems to be contained within whatever physical body we currently experience as ourself. Therefore, we never experience ourselves as any of these five sheaths without experiencing them, ourselves as all of them. That's why in, um, in, uh, um, in verse 5 of Uludhanaptu, Bhagavan says, all these five sheaths are included in the term body. And whenever we experience ourselves as a body, we experience ourselves as all these five. We never experience ourselves... We, we, we never experience any of these um, on their own. We always experience them all uh, together, joint, uh, uh, collectively. This is why Bhagavan generally refers to our identification with all the five sheaths as the thought, I am this body, and why he refers to it in this verse as Una Udl Iduve Nanam. That means this body composed of flesh is I. Enum the thought, this body composed of flesh itself is I. That is, though the term una udl, the body composed of flesh, obviously refers to the physical body, by implication it also refers to the other four sheaths. Because we are never aware of ourselves as a physical body without simultaneously being aware of ourselves as the life, mind, intellect, and will that seem to be contained within it and to animate it. That is, whenever we experience ourselves as I am this body, it, we never experience a dead body as ourselves. So the life is always there as part, part and parcel of the body. And we never experience ourselves as a sleeping body. So it, the body always seems to be awake. awake. And even, in, even in dream, when we dream ourselves to be an, another body, we seem to be awake. So the body, whenever we are aware of ourselves as I am this body, we're aware not only of the body and the life that animates it, but also the mind, the intellect, and the will that are functioning within it. So all these five collectively are what Bhagavan refers to as body. And in this case, he refers to them as the body composed of flesh. Because within this body composed of flesh are all these others. Um, they're in, intrinsically present. Whenever we experience a body as I, we always experience all these five. Whenever we rise and stand as ego, we're aware of ourselves as if we were a body composed consisting of five sheaths. So this false awareness, I am a body, is the very nature of ego, and it is what Bhagavan sometime, sometimes refers to as the thought called I, or the thought called I am this body, or in this case, as the thought called 
Ula Udl Iduvei Nanam. This, this, the body composed of flesh, itself is I. So why does he call this false awareness a thought? According to him, everything other than pure awareness, which is our fundamental awareness of our own existence, I am, is just a thought, being a mental fabrication, manokalpana, and therefore a mental in nature. The first mental fabrication and the root of all other mental fabrications is ego, which is this false awareness, I am this body. So it is a thought, nenevu, in the broadest sense, in the in the broad sense in which he uses this term. Uh, uh, no thought is other than ego's awareness of it. So its awareness of anything other than pure awareness is a thought. And since ego is that which is aware of itself as something other than pure awareness, it is itself a thought. However, Unlike all other thoughts, which are jada, devoid of awareness, and therefore not aware of anything, ego is aware both of itself and all other things. That is, as Bhagavan says in verse 24 of Uludhanaptu, ego what is what is called chit jada granti. That means a not granti formed by the seeming entanglement of pure awareness, chit, with a body which is non-aware, jada, so it seems, so, so it contains within itself an element of pure awareness. However, in ego, pure awareness is seemingly distorted and obscured by being mixed and conflated with the body and other thoughts, and hence it is sometimes described as chidabhasa, which means, abhasa means a likeness or semblance, it can also mean a reflective image. So Chidabhasa means a semblance or reflected image of awareness, thereby indicating that it is not real awareness, it's not awareness as it actually is, that is, even though it could not seem to exist if it were not supported by pure awareness, which is its source, substance, reality, foundation, and essence. Since all other thoughts, which means everything other than pure awareness, seem to exist only in the view of ourself as ego, none of them could exist without ego. And hence Bhagavan says that ego is the root of all other thoughts. And in this verse he describes it as nana ninevugul se or na, which means the one thread on which all the various or many thoughts are strung or joined. If we cut out the root of a plant, the plant will die. And if we cut the string that holds the beads of a necklace together, the necklace will be destroyed. Likewise, if we eradicate ego, the false awareness I am this body, everything else will cease to exist along with it. Um, so, uh, um, if we go within investigating the source from which we have spread out, ego and all other thoughts will cease. This is what Bhagavan um, goes on to say. Um, that is, this first clause, una udl iduve nanam enum neneve, nana nenevugal se or na enum adanal. Uh, since the thought, this body composed of flesh alone is I, 
itself is I, alone is the one thread on which all the various thoughts are strung. This clause ends with Adanal. Adanal um, literally means by that. And if Adanal occurs at the beginning of a sentence or a clause, it would mean therefore. But at the end of a clause, as in this case, it means since or because. This word, therefore, indicates the logical connection between this clause and the rest of the sentence, namely that, it, that what is stated in this first clause is a reason for what is stated in the subsequent clauses. That is, the reason why thoughts will cease if we go within investigating ourselves, the source from which ego rises, is that to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, ego will thereby subside. And when we attend to ourselves keenly enough, when we attend to ourselves so keenly that we are thereby aware of ourselves as we actually are, ego will cease to exist, and hence all other thoughts will cease to exist along with it. Therefore, the only means to bring about the permanent dissolution of all thoughts that he referred to in the second sentence of the previous verse is to eradicate ego because ego is the first thought and the root of all other thoughts so the means to eradicate ego is explained by him in the next clause of this of, of the first sentence of this verse uh, na na idum edu ul po nal that means if one goes within investigating what is the place from which i spread out the word investigating is not uh, explicit here. It's implied by the, by the quotative participle endrew. That in this context, that implies investigating. If one goes within investigating, what is the place from which I uh, spread out? That is, this is the, the, the means that he gives us. That is, we can eradicate ego only by being aware of ourselves as we actually are. And we can be aware of ourselves as we actually are only by attending to ourselves so keenly that we thereby cease to be aware of anything else whatsoever. It is such keen self-attentiveness that Bhagavan describes in this clause, because to the extent uh, to which we are keenly self-attentive, we will thereby sink deep within until eventually we dissolve and merge forever in the source from which we rose, namely the pure and fundamental awareness I am. Nana uh, idum edu can be interpreted in two ways, uh, because R is a, both the root of a verb, which in this context means to spread out, and an interrogative pronoun meaning who. If we if we take it to be a verb, it is acting here as an adjectival or relative participle. So in that case, na na idumedu means what is the place from which I spread out. Alternatively, if we take it to be an interrogative pronoun, na na idumedu means who am I, what is my place. Uh, in either case, idum, uh, place, is used metaphorically to refer to the source from which I rises and the ground on which it stands. And this source or ground is nothing other than our own real nature, Atmasarupa, 
which is the fundamental awareness that always shines within us as our own being, I am. Bhagavan sometimes described uh, self-investigation, Atmavichara, as investigating who or what I am. And at other times he described it as investigating the place from which I rise. But these are just two alternative ways of describing exactly the same practice. Because we ourselves are the place or source from which we rise as ego. Just as what seems to be a snake is an illusory appearance, because what it actually is is just a harmless rope, Ego is an illusory appearance because what it actually is is just pure awareness, which is our real nature. The rope is both what the snake actually is and the thing or source from which it appeared. Likewise, pure awareness is both what ego actually is, its substance or real nature, and the place, the thing or source from which it appeared. In order to see the snake as uh, oh, sorry, in order to see that the snake is actually just a rope, we need to look at it very carefully. Likewise, in order to see that we, who now seem to be this form-grasping phantom-like demon called ego, are actually just pure awareness, we need to attend to ourselves very keenly. Attending to ourselves thus is self-investigation, which we can describe either as investigating what we, this ego, actually are, or equally well as investigating the place or source from which we have appeared or risen. Therefore, in this clause, nana idumedu endru ulponal, if one goes within investigating what is the place from which I spread out, it does, not, it does not matter whether we interpret nana idumedu uh, to mean uh, uh, either what is the place from which I spread out or who am I and what is the place from which I appear. Uh, because the place or source from which we appear, rise or spread out, is itself what we actually are. In the phrase nana Idom, the place from which I spread out, there are two implications of the verb are spread out, because nana idom implies the implies firstly the source uh, the source from which ego rises, and secondly the source from which it immediately spreads out as other thoughts. That is all thoughts which means all phenomena, since all phenomena are just thoughts in the sense of mental phenomena, are just an expansion of ego. Because what ego sees as all other thoughts is itself alone. As Bhagavan implies in verse 26 of Uludhanaptu by saying, Ahandeya yavamam, ego itself is everything. In other words, ego is the substance that appears as all other thoughts, because they appear and disappear only in the view of ourself as ego. So they have no existence independent of ego. They borrow their semi existence from the semi existence of ourself as ego. And ego borrows its semi existence from the real existence of ourself as we actually are, namely Satchit, pure being awareness which is the place or source from which it rises. 
Therefore, as soon as we rise as ego, we immediately spread out as the appearance of all other thoughts or phenomena. If we go within by keenly investigating ourselves, the source from which we have risen as ego, and then spread out as all other thoughts, and the ground that, is, that underlies and supports the appearance of ourself as ego, the thought, I am this body, namely ego, which is the first thought and the root of all other thoughts, will cease to exist, and hence all other thoughts will cease along with it. As he implies in the second and third clauses of this first sentence, nana idum edu endu ulponal ninevugal poi. Uh, that means if one goes within investigating what is the place from which I spread out, thoughts ceasing. That is, in this context, the uh, adverbial clause, ninevugal poi, thought ceasing, implies that all thoughts, including the root thought, I am this body, will cease forever when we go within deeply enough by investigating our own being, I am, which both... Uh, which is both our source and uh, substance, meaning that it is the source from which we have risen and the one real substance that we actually are. The nature of ourself as ego is to rise, stand and flourish to the extent to which we attend to anything other than ourselves, but to subside and dissolve back within to the extent that we attend to ourself alone. Implied, therefore, implied in these two clauses, na na idumedu, endu ulponal, nine vugal poi, if one goes within investigating what is the place from which I spread out, thought ceasing, is what is not only one of the most fundamental and essential principles of Bhagavan's teachings, but also the one that is of greatest practical significance, namely, that we rise, stand, and flourish as ego to the extent to, uh, to which we attend to anything other than ourself, but, so, but subside back within to the extent that we uh, to the extent that we attend only to our own being, I am. So if we sink back, if we sink deep within by attending to our being sufficiently cleanly, we will thereby dissolve and merge in it forever, never to rise again. And everything else, namely all thoughts or phenomena, will cease to exist along with us. This principle is implied by him in many of his verses and oral teachings, particularly in Uludunapdu, but it is uh, expressed by him most clearly, succinctly, and comprehensively in verse 25 of Uludunapdu. What he says in verse 25 of Uludunapdu is, Urupatriundam, grasping form, it comes into existence. Urupatrinikum, uh, grasping form, it stands. Urupatriundu ongum, grasping and feeding on form, it uh, grows abundantly. Uruvitu uh, urupatrum, leaving form, a grass form. Tedinal otum pidicum. If sought, it will take flight. Uruvatrapeya uh, hande. The formless demon ego. 
that, that what that implies is such is the nature of this formless demon ego or investigate that is the final word word of perverse is or which means investigate or no um since ego it's in Bhagavan describes ego here as Uruvatrapei, a formless demon or phantom or evil spirit. Whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. That is, since it itself is formless, if it whatever if it grasps form, he's grasping things other than itself. So Urupatri, grasping form, implies grasping things other than itself. However, being a formless spirit. It has no means to grasp such things other than in its awareness. So in this context, patri, grasping, implies attending to and thereby being aware of. Therefore, the first four sentences of this verse, urupatri undam, urupatri nekum, urupatri undumika ongum, uruvitu urupatrum, grasping form it comes into existence, grasping form it stands, grasping and feeding on form it grows abundantly, leaving form it grasps form, imply that the very nature of ego is to grasp forms, which means to attend to and to be aware of things other than itself namely objects or phenomena of one kind or another. Without grasping forms or phenomena, it cannot come into existence, endure, fl or flourish. So they are the food on which it must constantly feed itself in order to survive. In other words, we seem to be ego, this false awareness that is always aware of itself as I am this body, only so long as we are attending to anything other than ourself. So by attending to such things, by grasping form that is, we are nourishing and perpetuating this illusory phantom called ego. How then can we eradicate ego? Only by attending to ourself alone as Bhagavan implies in the fifth sentence of this verse, which is its logical conclusion, teidinal otum pidicum, if sought, it will take flight. Though the passive conditional, if sought, is the clearest way to translate the conditional participle teidinal in this context, a more accurate translation of it would be if seeking, because it is not actually passive but active, though in this case it has neither an explicit subject or an explicit object. That's why it's easier in English to put it as a passive, though it's not actually passive. Um, I mean, in English it, it conveys the me, it, it makes more sense in English if we put it as passive, but it's not actually passive. It's, it's an active verb without a, an explicit subject or an explicit object. So what is the implied subject and the implied object of this conditional participle? In other words, uh, what is to seek and what is to be sought? Uh, what is to be sought is ego, or rather the reality of ego. That is what ego actually is when it is divested of all its adjuncts. And what is, and what is to seek it uh, is likewise ego. Um, which means ourself as ego. Therefore, what Tedinal, if seeking or sought, implies is if we as ego seek the reality of ourself, or in other words, 
if we investigate ourselves by keenly attending to ourselves in order to see what we actually are. That is what Bhagavan implies by this single word, Tedinal. It's a which is a conditional participle. Um, the next word in this sentence is otom, which is a noun that means running, fleeing, or flight. That is flight not in the sense of flying, but in the sense of fleeing or running away. Um, and pidicum is the neuter third person singular future or predictive form of the verb pidi, which means to grasp, seize, catch, take, or resort to. So otum pidi is a compound term that means to take flight, flee, or run away. And hence, autumpidicum means it will take flight, it will flee, or it will run away, in which it refers to ego. There's no word for it in uh, in Tamil, but the, it is implied in the, because of, in the form of a verb, because it's a, a neuter third person singular form, the implied uh, pronoun is it. And what this, this implied it refers to is uh, ego. Therefore, tedinal autumpidicum, if sought, it will take flight, implies that if we attend only to ego to see its underlying reality, it will run away, meaning that it will subside back within and dissolve in the pure awareness I am, which is its source and underlying reality. Thus, whereas the first four sentences of this verse imply that the very nature of ego is to always grasp things other than itself, this, this fifth sentence implies that if instead of grasping anything, any other thing, it tries to grasp itself alone, it will thereby subside and dissolve back into its source, which is what we actually are. In other words, we seem to be ego so long as we attend to and thereby experience anything other than ourself. But if instead we turn our attention back towards ourself to see what we actually are, we will see that there's no such thing as ego at all. Because what seemed to be ego was only ourself as we always actually are, namely such it, pure being awareness, I am. Or to put it even more simply, we seem to be ego only so long as we are looking elsewhere, looking at anything other than ourselves, that is. But if we look at ourselves carefully enough, we will not see any such thing as ego at all. What we will see in its place is only its underlying reality, namely Atmaswarupa, the real nature of ourself, which is pure, infinite, indivisible, and immutable being awareness, such it which is eternally free of adjuncts, upadis, and therefore never aware of itself as anything other than I am I. Since the nature of ego is to flourish so long as its existence is taken for granted, but to run away when it is investigated, Bhagavan used to illustrate this by telling a story about a wayfarer who posed as a bridegroom's friend. In earlier times in India, as most of you probably know, a wedding celebration typically lasted five days. It would take place in the village of the bride, whose family would host the family and friends of the bridegroom. 
One day a wayfarer noticed preparations for a wedding in a village and saw the bridegroom's party approaching. So he decided that this would be a good opportunity for him to feast and enjoy himself for five days. As the bridegroom's party entered the village, he joined them. And when they came near the bride's house, he entered ahead of them uh, and started to give instructions to her party as if they were he were a representative of the bridegroom's party. He then welcomed the bridegroom's party as if he belonged to the bride's party. So he was duping each side. He was to the bride's party. The bride's party was led to believe that he belonged to the bridegroom's party, and the bridegroom's party was led to believe that he belonged to the bride's party. So he was very cleverly uh, uh, cheating both sides. So each party mistook him to be an important member of the other party and honored him accordingly. In this way, he enjoyed himself for five days, bossing over both parties and taking full advantage of the respect they showed him. But when the celebrations were drawing to a close and the guests were leaving, the close relatives of the bride and bridegroom were finally able to sit down together to discuss various matters. A relative of the bride then asked who was the very helpful young friend of the bridegroom, who the, who, who the very helpful young friend of the bridegroom was. But the bridegroom's relatives replied that they did not know him and thought he was a friend or, or relative of the bride's family. Seeing that they were beginning to investigate who he was, the wayfarers quietly slipped away. So when they looked for him, he was nowhere to be found. And that was the last they ever saw of him. Likewise, so long as we do not investigate who or what this ego actually is, it will boss over us and take full advantage of our ignorance and gullibility. But if we investigate it carefully enough, it will slip away, never to be found or to appear again. This story is so typical of Bhagwan, how he tells a very simple, homely story to illustrate a very, very deep truth. Um, but this wasn't the only story he told to illustrate this. Another story that he sometimes told to illustrate this, as, to illustrate the same thing, but in a, from a slightly different angle, um, was as follows. A sadhu, that is a religious mendicant, lived in an old dilapidated mandapam, that is an open pillared hall used for uh, temple festivals. Um, and that mandapam was outside the village. Once a day, he would go to a village to beg his food, which he would bring back to the mandapam. And after eating half of it, he would keep the other half in his begging bowl to eat the next morning. One morning he woke up and found his bowl was empty, so he understood that it must have been eaten by someone while he was sleeping. The next night, therefore, he wanted to remain silent, uh, he wanted to remain vigilant in order to catch the thief, but he was eventually overcome by sleep, and after a while he was woken by a slurping sound. Opening his eyes, he saw a dog was licking the food from his bowl. But as soon as the dog noticed him um, looking at it, it ran away. Therefore, the next night, it's, uh, sorry, th therefore, the next night, he was determined to be more vigilant. Uh, he lay down with his eyes closed as if he was sleeping, but listened intently for any sound. Uh, 
After a while, he heard the soft sound of the dog approaching, so he opened his eyes. Seeing that he was looking at it, the dog stopped, waiting for him to close his eyes. But since he continued looking at it, it gradually began to slip away. The following night, he was again vigilant, looking out for the dog's arrival. So when the dog cautiously entered the mandapam, it saw that it was being watched, so it stopped and then slowly began to retreat. The next night, it did not even enter the mandapam, but peered in from, a, from outside, and seeing that it was again being watched, it slipped away. Each successive night, it was more cautious and stayed further away from the mandapam. But seeing that it was being watched every time, it eventually stopped coming. Such is the nature of ego. If we do not watch it vigilantly, it will rise and play havoc with us. But if we merely watch it, it will subside and take flight. Being very gentle-natured, the sadhu never tried to chase the dog away, but simply looked at it, and his mere look was sufficient to make it retreat and run away. Ego rises, stands, and flourishes to the extent to which we attend to anything other than ourselves. But like the dog withdrawing because it is being watched, ego will withdraw and sink back into its source to the extent to which we vigilantly attend to it. Therefore, curbing the rising of ego and eventually vanquishing it entirely is extremely easy, provided we have sufficient love to do so. All we have to do is to be vigilantly self-attentive, watching ourselves carefully to prevent ourselves rising as ego. That's why, that's why the Pallavi of this song is Aye Aki Solapum, Anma Videi Aye Aki Solapum. Extreme, ah, extremely easy, extremely easy is this uh, Atma Vidya. It's extremely easy because all we have to do is to be self-attentive, to watch ourselves carefully and thereby bring about the subsidence and eventual uh, dissolution of ego. Um, another analogy I often use to illustrate this is the nature of a young rabbit who likes to come out of its burrow to play, but knows that being outside is potentially dangerous because predators such as foxes may try to catch and kill it. Therefore, when no one is watching it, it will happily play about outside. But as soon as it notices it is being watched, it will return to its burrow for safety. If it is being watched from a distance, it will remain outside but close to its burrow. But the closer the watching eyes approach, the more it will retreat back to its burrow. And when it is being watched closely, it will withdraw into its burrow and wait there until the danger has passed. Likewise, ego likes to rise and run, up, run outwards to play about in the world of phenomena. But it can do so only so long as it is not being watched. So if we keep a watchful eye on it, that is, on ourself who now seem to be ego, its rising and restless activity will thereby be curbed. To the extent to which we watch it carefully, it will thereby sink back within. So the more keenly we watch it, the more it will retreat back into it towards its source, like the rabbit retreating back towards its burrow. Even when we are not watching it so keenly that 
that it sinks back deeper inside and thereby merges completely in its source, we can at least curb the speed and enthusiasm with which it rushes outwards by trying to watch it as much as we can. Watching it is not at all difficult, so the only obstacle that prevents us from doing so is our enthusiasm for going outwards and consequent lack of willingness to watch ourselves. That is, being self-attentive is extremely easy, but we need to be, uh, the, the love to do so is necessary. The problem we all face when we try to put this into practice is we have more liking, more enthusiasm to go out to experience other things than we have to turn within and thereby subside back into our source. That is the problem. That is why this extremely easy path seems to us to be difficult, but it's difficult only because of our lack of love, our lack of willingness. The bridegroom's spurious friend, the hungry dog and the playful young rabbit are each analogous to ego, because like ego, they will each run away when they're investigated or watched. However, each of these three is something other than the one who is investigating or watching it, whereas ego is itself the one who needs to investigate or watch itself. That is, when we look carefully at ego to see what it, what it actually is, we are not looking at an object, but only at ourself, who now seem to be ego. In other words, it is we as ego who need to investigate ourselves by being keenly self-attentive. Because those ego is not what we actually are, it is not anything other than what we actually are. The rope is not a snake, but the snake is nothing other than the rope. So if we look at the snake carefully enough, it will in effect run away, because we will see that it is not actually a snake, but only a rope. That is, if so long as we don't look at it carefully enough, it seems to be a snake. If we look at it carefully enough, the snake will disappear and only a rope will remain, because what it actually is, is a rope. Uh, so the disappearance of the snake is what Bhagavan describes in this verse as running away or taking flight. Um, it, it, this verse means in verse 25 of Ulluvanaptu. Um, uh, likewise, what we actually are is not ego, but ego is nothing other than what we actually are, namely Satchit. So if we, who now seem to be ego, look at ego carefully enough, it will in effect run away because we will see that we are not actually ego, but only Satchit. Since ego will run away, meaning that it will cease to exist when we attend to ourselves keenly enough, and since everything else, all other thoughts, namely all forms, objects, or phenomena, seem to exist only in the view of ourself as ego, when ego ceases to exist as a result of our vigilant self-investigation, everything else will cease to exist along with it, as Bhagavan implies in verse 26 of Uludunaptu. That is, earlier I talked about verse 25. Verse 26 is a continu continuity of the same idea. What Bhagavan says in verse um, 26 of Uludhanaptu is, Ahandeyundayin anetumundahum. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. 
a Hyundai in jail into an atom. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. A Hyundai a Yabamam. Uh, ego itself is everything. Adalal, Yadu Idu Andru Nadale, Ovodul Yabamena or. Therefore, know that investigating what this ego uh, is alone is giving up everything. That is, since since ego will cease to exist if we investigate it, and since everything else exists only if ego exists, if we investigate ego, not only will ego cease to exist, everything else will cease to exist along with it. So Bhagavan says, Ovadal Yabam, it's giving up everything. That is why great love is required to follow this path, because if we don't have sufficient love to surrender ourselves completely, we will not be able to go deep in this path. So that love to surrender ourselves is the key to success in this path. That's why Bhagavan always used to say, uh, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Bhakti means that love to surrender ourselves, that love to give up everything and give, give, give it, surrendering ourselves, giving up ourselves means giving up everything. Because everything, everything else seems to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. This is why he says in the second and third clauses of the first sentence of this second verse of Anmavide, uh, Nana idum edu endru ulpo nal ninevugal poi. If one goes within investigating what is the place from which I spread out, thought ceasing. That is, since ego, which is the first thought, namely the thought I am this body, will cease to exist when we investigate ourselves, the source from which we have risen as ego and spread out as everything else, keenly enough, that is when we investigate ourselves keenly enough, all other thoughts will cease to exist along with it. So investigating ourselves entails giving up not only ego, but also everything else. Um, uh, uh, I think we're nearing uh, the time for completion, but have any questions come either in the, the, um, in the Zoom chat or in the, um, or in, in the uh, live chat on um, YouTube? Um, sir, there were two questions raised by Mr. Sushil Motwani. Yes. Uh, on the YouTube, which I have pasted here in the Zoom chat. If you may prefer, I can read them out to you. Uh, yes, please do. Sure. So the first question, and I quote, while practicing self-inquiry, at times there is a brief period of thoughtlessness, and there is a feeling of being self-aware or holding on to the I before thoughts begin again. What should one do at that time? Should one try to stay with that feeling of self-awareness or continue to ask to whom is this feeling, etc.? Doing so takes away that feeling. How should one know whether it is self-awareness versus manolaya? Unquote. Okay. Um, the state, we, we, during practice, until we reach our goal, we are never completely free of thought. Because so long as ego is present, other thoughts are also present, at least to some extent. And ego is the first thought. So what we call a state of thoughtlessness is a relative um, 
calmness of mind, that is when the, the, the superficial mental activity, the mental chatter, when that comes, to, when that quietens down, it seems to us to be a thought-free state, but it's not a totally thought-free state. So long as we are aware, I, I am meditating, I am sitting here, or, and we're aware of our surroundings, all these things are thought. So we, we during this practice, until we annihilate ego, we are not totally free of thought. Um, but when that that is, we need not be too concerned about thoughts. Uh, that is, thoughts will to the extent to which we are self-attentive, thoughts will subside. But uh, uh, Bhagavan doesn't want to. Our aim is not to bring about the subsidence of thought. Our aim is to know what we actually are. The subsidence of thought is a byproduct. We, that is, this is self-investigation. We are trying to know who am I. So our sole aim is to know who am I. To know, in order to know who am I, we need to attend to ourselves. And to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, our attention is withdrawn from other things, so thoughts naturally subside. But if we are concerned about thoughts, have the thoughts subsided or not, then our attention is again going away from ourselves. So in self-investigation, we have one aim and one aim alone, that is to attend to ourselves. That's why Bhagavan says in, in the sixth paragraph of Nana, however many thoughts arise, so what? If, if thoughts arise, it means our attention has been diverted away from ourselves towards something else. So what do we have to do? Whatever has appeared in our awareness, or whatever thought or phenomenon or whatever it is has appeared, to whom has it appeared? To me. We turn our attention back to ourselves. That doesn't mean we have to question ourselves. What Bhagavan means by investigating to whom, it means turning our attention back towards ourselves, the one to whom but uh, whatever anything has whatever it is has appeared and in self-investigation we don't have to ask any question we don't even have to ask the question who am i um that is though bhagavan expressed it as if in a uh, question it's not actually a question he bhagavan never said ask who am i or ask to whom. He said, investigate to whom. There's a difference between asking and investigating. If Bhagavan gives you a book and says, investigate what's written in it, you don't just sit there uh, with the book in your hand asking yourself what is written in this book. No. In order to investigate what's written in it, you open the book to see. Um, and then you you read it and you can then you then know what's inside. So investigating. Who am I? Means looking within ourselves to see what we actually are. It doesn't mean asking the questions. And the, regarding the question, what should we do? What we should do from beginning to end is only to attend to ourselves. We are not concerned about thought that thoughts appear or disappear. It's no concern of ours. Our only concern is to know who am I. And in order to know who am I, we need to attend to ourselves. We need to watch ourselves very carefully. So uh, uh, it, that is this practice of self-investigation is a one-step process. The first step is to attend to ourselves. That is also the last step. As we go as we practice more and more, we will go deeper and deeper within. But we go within only by attending to ourselves. So the practice
practice remains the same from beginning to end. It may get more subtle and more refined, but it is essentially it's the same practice, just being self-attentive. In the 16th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan defines what he means by self-investigation, Atmavichara. He says, Sadakalamum manate atmavil vetiriptkutan atmavicharamendrupaya. That means the name Atmavichara refers only to always keeping the mind on oneself or in oneself, you know, and it's a locative case, we can take it either way. So keeping our mind on ourselves means keeping our attention on ourselves. So self-attentiveness alone is self-investigation. So whether thoughts continue to flow or whether they stop, we, that's no concern of ours. We shouldn't be attending to the thoughts. Even if there are thoughts, we shouldn't notice them. So let the thoughts uh, appear or disappear, it's no concern of ours. Our only concern is to attend to ourselves, and that we need, we need to hold on to this self-attentiveness till we completely dissolve in our source. Um, and there was something else, um, that is another thing to understand, is the self-awareness, that is the awareness I am, is ever-present. Our aim is to attend to this awareness more and more uh, in order to see what we actually are. But it's not that this awareness appears, the awareness is ever-present. It's just like the, if you go to a cinema and to watch a film, you sit there for three hours looking at a screen. But generally, because we're more interested in the pictures that are projected on the screen, we, we are caught up in that story of whatever the, the film is, and we overlook the screen. But actually, what are we looking at all the time? We're looking only at the screen. So this, this awareness I am, self-awareness, is the screen on which all the pictures of our life, all our experiences, everything appears only on this screen. We overlook the screen because we're more interested in the pictures. But our aim is to, because what it, the pictures are not real, they're just a fleeting appearance. What is real is only the screen, uh, that fundamental awareness I am. So we begin, we need to, uh, we need to begin noticing that screen. The more we notice the screen, the less we will notice the pictures and vice versa. So our aim is to notice the screen, because we're always looking at the screen, but we're just overlooking it because we're more interested in the pictures. Um, so I hope that adequately answers that question. Do we have time for the second question? Um, sir, I will read the question out. If you think it can be wrapped up quickly, yes. you might like to take it today, else mm. next week, uh, sorry, yeah. next month. Uh, here is the second question, and I quote, Is there any significance of the Shri Chakra Yantra in this path? Does it help in driving the mind inwards, like gazing at Bhagavan's face as answered by you to Swami Sarvapriyananda? Unquote. Um, no, this Sri Chakra has no significance whatsoever in Bhagavan's teachings. The Sri Chakra was installed there in Bhagavan's mother's sanity by people who believed in such things. Actually, to tell the truth, there was absolutely no need to install a Sri Chakra there. Because why 
why that Matvuteshwara temple is sacred. It is sacred not because of the Sri Chakra, it is sacred because it is the Samadhi of a Jnani, and a very special Jnani at that, that is that body, that, that body of Bhagavan's mother, that was the body that was, was uh, served as a temple for, I mean, in, the, in her womb she carried Bhagavan. So it's such a sacred body. So it is because of the jnana that she attained at the last moment of her life, and because of the, the great blessing that she had to be the, the, the mother of the, 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 the greatest of all great, I mean, we can't say how great Bhagavan is. So that temple is sacred because Bhagavan's mother, who was a jnani, was buried there. The reason three chakras are, are installed in temples is to give power to the temple. But what greater power is there than jnana? So if they really understood, if the people who built the temple really understood the greatness of mother, they would not have felt any need to install this three chakra. It was not Bhagavan who asked them to install this three chakra. Bhagavan is not this Sri Chakra belongs, it's, it's a tantric form of worship. Bhagavan was not, um, Bhagavan's part is, the tantric part is very complex and ritualistic and roundabout and full of mantras and tantras and all these yantras and all these things. It's, um, Bhagavan's part is extremely simple. The, all these mantras, yantras, tantras, they're all things outside. Bhagavan's path is about turning within. So this Sri Chakra has nothing to do with Bhagavan's path. For those who like to worship it, for, and those who worship it, they're usually worshiping it for some, some gain. They believe if they worship it, it will. They, 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 people who want to, who pay to have Sri Chakra Puja done, they're doing it for, because they want some, uh, some good blessings for their family or whatever. But if we're following Bhagavan's path, we none of this kamyata worship will uh, appeal to us. So for those who are truly following Bhagavan's path, this Sri Chakra is completely unnecessary. That doesn't mean it is not, it's not appropriate for others to worship it. If those who are inclined to worship such things, Bhagavan was not against any form of worship. But if we are following Bhagavan's path, Bhagavan's path is essentially a path of turning within. And if at all our mind is going outwards, Bhagavan has worshipped. Who did Bhagavan worship? Did Bhagavan ever worship any Sri Chakra? No. Bhagavan worshipped. The only name and form Bhagavan worshipped was the name and form of Arunachala, because Arunachala was his guru. So, uh, like, we shall follow Bhagavan's example. If at all we feel inclined to worship any name and form, we have the name and form of Arunachala, and the name and form of Bhagavan. Actually, though they are two names and forms, they are one and the same. That is, Arunachala is Bhagavan in the form of a hill. Arunachala, sorry, Bhagavan, that is, is Arunachala in human form. They are one and the same. So if we want to worship any external form, we need we we have more than enough in the form of Arunachala and the form of Bhagavan. We don't need to worship any other name and form. So but and what is the efficacy of worship of, of worship of thinking of Arunachala or thinking of Bhagavan or looking at them? 
they have, because they are, that is, those two names and forms appear for one purpose and one purpose alone, to turn our mind back within. What was it that Arunachya taught Bhagavan? He says in Akshramlai, Tiram Biaham Dinam Ahaka Dinam Tiram Biaham Tane Dinam Ahakankan Terium. Turning within, see yourself daily with the inner eye, it will be known. So, this is the teaching of Aranatya, this is the teaching of Bhagavan. So, those external names and forms appeared only to turn our attention within. So we shouldn't be going out worshipping all these. There's so many different names and forms of God. They're all appropriate for people to worship, people who are drawn to those things. But if we're drawn to follow Bhagavan's path, we need not worship any name or form other than Arunachala Ramana. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. <laughs>